Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning, folks. It's a Thursday again, and we're having another PIC Classified episode here, and I'm happy to introduce my guest this morning, Hal Humphreys. Uh, probably many of you know him from the uh, from reading Pursuit magazine, and he is, well, I guess, are you the editor, actually, or is your wife doing the editing all the time, Hal? Well, to be honest with you, my wife is um, is a writer by trade, so she handles most of the editing. If there's a story that has controversy in it or something that might be a little bit um, uh, questionable for PIs, I, I, I take the last, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm the one that, that gets to call the person and say, hey, we can't run this story. <laughs> I, see. I see. Oh, good. You get the great, the best job, huh? <laughs> Yeah, well, we, we had we had a we had an article a couple of months ago that was talking about um, bail enforcement officers, and the person who wrote the story was was using the term bounty hunter throughout. And um, you know, we there's some controversy about whether to use the term bounty hunter or not. And uh, I, I called Joe Styles over here in Tennessee, uh, a, a world renowned. Um, bail enforcement agent and got his advice and uh that's the kind of stuff that i i handle and then kim green uh the actual editor is one that that handles um you know structure and style and story oh great so you're you're the face of the organization they're doing all the the work then huh <laughs> except you're, you're the <laughs> one doing that all has the heavy to... lifting <laughs> when, that's great when, when i'm the face of an organization it's it can be a problem. <laughs> I see. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, I was I was actually reading uh, reading your bio. Um, what what do you have here? The beard. Is that where you're? Yes. So tell us about here the yeah, beard. Uh, tell us about that. So here the beard. I I get asked to present um, to private investigative groups and uh, lawyer associations and and other professional groups um, on a fairly regular basis. And um, it ends up being just an easier way to deal with requests like that. I can send them to the website. They can pull a bio. They can pull photos and and uh, and kind of see what it is that I do and the, the the attitude that I bring to the table. So that's that's what here the beard is about. I see the attitude. Now that's an interesting word to describe it. What it what do you mean by that? Well, I'm a bit uh what's the word I'm looking for? I can be a little bit um shoot, I'm trying to think of the way to say this. Some people <laughs> find me to be not as serious as I'm supposed to be considering the work that we do. Um I, I tend to have um a little bit of an obtuse sense of humor um and I try to bring a little bit of humor to the presentations that I give. So yeah, that's the attitude I'm talking about. It's not like I'm a mean guy or anything. Well, this is definitely a, the work that needs humor, for sure. No question about it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Understatement, huh? 
understatement. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. So you were, how you were just telling me about a podcast that you've started. Uh, let's let's tell our listeners about that right away, so we don't leave leave it out. Yeah, so um, Pursuit Magazine has been around for uh, over ten years now, and um, we we have a podcast. It's called The Sound of Pursuit. Um, we don't really promote it too heavily right now because we're trying to bank up, um, you know, a good list of episodes. But uh, we've got some some kind of heavily produced episodes that are reported um, by. Uh, you know, world-class reporters, um, Sean Cole, who uh, produces and hosts for This American Life uh, on a regular basis, has done a couple episodes for us. Uh, several public radio producers have done some for us. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good podcast. It's fun. Um, I think it, it covers some topics that private investigators are interested in. Um, and I think we do it in a little bit of a creative uh, uh, fashion, and then when we don't have time to get an actual produced piece together, um, my job is to come into the studio and put together, you know, a five-minute or ten-minute essay on a specific topic. Great. So, uh, p- people want to listen to it. How do they get to it? It is on iTunes, and I think it's on. Um, it should be on all of the major uh, podcast hosting platforms or streaming platforms like Stitcher and stuff like that. Um, and we are working on, as we speak, uh, getting an updated uh, button on Pursuit Magazine so people can just click straight through to it. Okay. So uh, if people want to listen, they can just uh, Google Pursuit and it'll come up? I think if you Google um, the sound of pursuit, it oh, would come up that way. If you do pursuit, yeah, if you do pursuit with private investigators, it'll probably just go straight to the magazine. But the sound right. of pursuit should bring it up. Um, and if okay. you're in iTunes, I think if you search the sound of pursuit, it should come up that way as well. Yeah, that's a great name. Good for you. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let me just get, uh, uh, before we get started talking about today we're going to talk about the various uh, ups and downs of talking to witnesses, so which is always an interesting topic, my one of my favorite. But I want to get just get some announcements about these conferences coming up out of the way um, before I forget. And the one that's coming up next week is the National Council of Investigative and Security Services, their national conference and Hit the Hill event, which is the 29th through the 1st of May. And it's at... Uh, Capital Skyline Hotel, I think probably they're sold out already, but you can still go if you want to. Uh, go to NCISS.org to get more information. And then the next one coming up would be, uh, I think, Fally, uh, Florida Association of Licensed Investigators. That's coming up May 2nd to the 4th at the Double Tree Entrance to Universal Studios, Fally, F-A-L-I.org. Then the next one, this is one right after the other, folks. If You could spend the year going to private investigator conferences. The next one is Cali, the California Association, in Vegas at the Westgate Hotel, Resort, and Casino, May 30th to June 1st. And finally, the National Association of Legal Investigators at the Doubletree. Guess we like the Doubletree, huh? Doubletree Hotel in Philadelphia, July 18th and 19th. Folks, these are all great conferences, great education Good networking, and uh, I recommend you check them out. Um, so, Hal, we want to talk today about 
interviewing witnesses and and your orientation is kind of more uh, interviewing criminal uh, case witnesses. Is that correct? Oh, that's mostly correct. Yeah, I do some civil work as well, and there's some nuances between the two that um, I'm happy to get into uh, as as we go along. But yeah, the bulk of my work is criminal defense work. Okay, and so your background is journalism, isn't that correct? Yeah, so I um I did commercial due diligence for about 23 years. During that time frame, I did some work for public radio and some newspapers as a freelancer. Um, and I've I've you know spent time interviewing people in that capacity. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of journalists and what they bring to the table when it comes to interviewing people. Absolutely. So, how would you describe? What would you describe are the differences between? interviewing for journalistic purposes and interviewing for, for a criminal defense case? You know, I don't think there are a whole lot of differences um, in the approach and in the questions one might ask. I think the primary differences end up being how the information is used um, for criminal defense purposes. You know, <clears throat> what you end up <clears throat> getting into court it depends on a number of rules, uh, you know, based on the law. You can't, you know, there are hearsay rules and, and things like that. So my job as an investigator working for criminal defense attorneys is to talk to the witness, find out what it is they have to say, um, find out what, what their version of the story is, and then report that to the attorneys. And then the attorneys will take that information um, and either ask me to go back and ask more questions or take it for what it is and, and you know, use it in the way they see fit. Whereas a journalist, um, they're usually, uh, their client is the general public and they're trying to tell a, a broader narrative. Um, so a journalist, when they interview someone, they might be able to use hearsay information. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. As long as they um, disclose that's trying, what it was, correct? They'd have to disclose it, that it was hearsay? Or not necessarily. Um, I think from a journalist's perspective, most of them would say this person, you know, says this happened, this happened, this happened, and, and you know, they, they can kind of run with that. Now, I know that, you know, some uh, news organizations that still do, um, you know, reported pieces and I'm thinking of ProPublica, I'm thinking of um, uh, the Texas Monthly, uh, the Washington Post, and uh, the New York Times, those outlets uh, will typically, if, if a reporter is going to use a piece of information, they're going to have to source it from you know, two or three different sources before they can use it. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And, of course, as we know, all these agencies, these news agencies have been under the gun in the last few years about um, reporting things that aren't true and fake news and all those kinds of things that we've been hearing about. So it, they right. they really do have to be careful, don't they? Don't they? And I, I would say, you know, I, I know that there, there are political um, um implications based on the sources you go to for news. For instance, when I tell some people that I go to the New York Times, uh, their reaction is, oh, you're just reading the liberal news. Uh, Same thing with the Washington Post or National Public Radio. But the reason I go to those sources is 
they have really stringent editorial policies, and they require their reporters to um, to source a piece of information. Uh, I think the Washington Post requires at least three different sources before they'll cite a thing as a fact. Um, uh, the Texas Monthly, I've given them as, as an example, they, they do a fantastic job of, you know, editorial control and making sure that their reporters uh, source their information and, and report it accurately. And then the, the, the first one that I mentioned, ProPublica, um, are you familiar with ProPublica? I am. Yes, I am. Uh, they do some of the most fantastic work in the country as far as reported journalism. And, you know, I know several of people that write for them. I know several editors for them. And I know that they go through a stringent, you know, extremely difficult editorial process uh, to get, you know, stories put together and news out there that um, cannot be attacked by and large as fake news because they've, they've done such a fantastic job of reporting it. I, yeah, I know. And it's, it's really refreshing. They, they do, they do do a great job. Um, and you can tell yeah. uh, that they, their content is very meaty um, and thorough. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, w- I would just suggest for the for the PI listeners out there, and then people that are interested in the, the private investigations trade, um, there's a there's a writer that works for ProPublica right now. Her name is Pam Koloff, and Pam has been doing some fantastic work over the past year on um, forensic science and some of the the very serious problems with um, expert witness testimony in forensic science. Uh, and if, you, if anyone gets a chance to uh, check out some of Pam Koloff's reporting on those issues, it's really interesting for private investigators to read. That's great. Good. That's a really good tip. Thank you. I appreciate you sharing that. Sure. So uh, one of the differences, uh, however, between journalism and criminal defense is the handling of confidential requested confidential information. Can you address that? Um, so requesting confidential information. So I would think a reporter has a duty, um, you know, to the newspaper and to their sources to maintain confidentiality. Um, as you know, for a private investigator, once information enters the realm of the court, the judge is the arbiter of what happens with that information. It can come into court, it can stay out of court, but it all kind of depends on you know, what the judge has to say about it. Um, so if you interview a witness for a criminal case um, and the judge allows them to testify or, or if a witness says, I don't want to be involved in this, but they have something to say that's helpful to your case, um, you know, you're, you're going to return that information over to your attorneys um, and the attorneys are going to use it if it is going to help their case. Whereas for journalists, a lot of times they, they do have agreements with their sources to keep their name you know, private and protect them as much as possible. Um, I'm thinking right now specifically of, um, I cannot remember the kid's name, uh, the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners has just named him the Whistleblower of the Year. Um, he, do you, do you remember the story about Theranos? Yes, but I'm not sure I'm up to speed on it. Okay. So Theranos, um, was, uh, a tech, a med tech startup out in California. 
Um, and it was oh, yeah. run by a young lady, and I can't remember her name. Anyway, um, you know, the, the young man who was the primary whistleblower was talking to a reporter at the Washington Post, and he had asked for um, anonymity, he'd asked for confidentiality, and the reporter did everything he could to protect this kid's identity. But some of the information that, that he reported um, you know, let the investigators working for the company discover who he was, and he was eventually outed. Um, luckily for the reporter, this kid stuck to his story and, 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 you know, kind of followed through on it. But journalists have a, have a duty to their sources. They have a duty to the general public, whereas we have a duty to, number one, um, you know, Eli Rosenblatt is a, is a buddy of ours who works with us. Uh, oh, yes, I know Eli. Magazine and PI mm-hmm. Education. Um, and Eli, Eli said a couple of years ago, he said, you know, we don't have, uh, um, we don't have a duty to a specific party so much as we have a duty to the truth. Um, and that, that's our job as private investigators is to suss out the facts and suss out, you know, as many facts as we can. And then, you know, we provide that to the attorneys and they use it. As well. But, and if we're working on a criminal case, uh, for the defense, which is that's what we would do because they don't, because the prosecution doesn't hire private investigators to work on their cases. Right. Uh, and somebody says, well, I'll tell you this, but I don't want you to tell anybody. I want you to keep it confidential. We cannot do that. We're bound to, oh, absolutely to report not. it to, to who we're working for. Yep. Um, and, you know, the, the other thing, and that brings up, I think, a pretty important thing in dealing with witnesses, and this, I think, applies to criminal and civil cases both. Um, you know, a lot of private investigators do their work um, if they're doing um, domestic work and surveillance work and stuff like that. Uh, they like to be a little bit surreptitious and a little bit cagey about what it is they're doing. Um, if you're an investigator working for a law firm on a criminal case or a civil case, you have to be straight up front with the witness about who right. you are, who you're working for, and the fact that, yes, this information very well may be used, um, and there's not much they can do about that. I mean, here's the thing. If they, if they are a witness to um, a crime or if they're a witness to an accident or they're a friend of someone who's a witness to a thing, um, anything they tell an investigator can actually be used um and you know if it's if it's useful to the case or informative to the case it most likely will be used that's right and you know we even have i don't know about where you are uh hal but in california we have a law that requires both the prosecution and the defense when they contact a witness to disclose who they're working for provide a business card and tell the name of the client so and it's a misdemeanor if you don't do that Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, so we're really required to do that. And that's been in effect probably, oh, I don't know, maybe 25 years or more. Wow, I did not know that. Now, I I will tell you right up front, I don't have business cards. (laughs) You don't have what? I generally don't. I don't. I don't generally carry business cards with me. Um, really? If somebody, if I, if I'm going to talk to a witness and they don't, um, they're not there. Their family members there. I'll write my phone number down for them and my name. Um, but I don't generally carry business cards with me. Interesting. So, so in a criminal case in California, um, any um, person that's mentioned in the police report for any reason, 
even if it's a neighborhood canvas and they don't say anything. They are considered a prosecution right. witness. So we are bound really? to disclose that information, no matter who we talk to, if their name is in the report. Interesting. Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> the, the, yeah, the, so. the state-by-state laws are, are truly um, a minefield. They are. That's true. So I just want to go back. You mentioned Theranos. Um, just to, for the listeners, if they didn't know who you're we talking about, that's Elizabeth Holmes, who started right. this company about blood testing. And it's turned out to be a complete fraud, as it turned out. There was, I think there was just a Dateline or 2020 uh, program on it recently. There was. Um, and let's see if I can find the young man's name. Um, Tyler Schultz is the whistleblower um, who, uh, and again, like I said, the, the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners named him Whistleblower of the Year. Um, and he had asked, um, and, and Tyler Schultz, by the way, is the, I think, grandson of former Secretary of State George Schultz. Oh, really? Who was okay. A Theranos, who was a Theranos director um, at the time this fraud was going on. Um, he was on the board of directors, um, so it was it was a big deal for Tyler Schultz to come out and, and blow the whistle. And um, the reporter who was was working um, on the piece now it, it may have been the Wall Street Journal. I don't I don't remember exactly which news outlet it was that, that broke the story. But the reporter that was working on the story, um, you know, told him he would help him maintain his confidentiality and his anonymity. Uh, and did a did a you know a yeoman's work trying to do that, but at the end of the day, you know sometimes it just comes out. You you can't you can't hide from the from the facts that they point to you. You know what I'm saying? Right. And I understand his grandfather tried to talk him out of uh, doing this, reporting this information. He did apparently. Um, although I will say that he you know in interviews since that, his grandfather's come out and said that he's very proud of him for sticking to his guns and you know was totally shocked about the fraud and all that business. So the, the Theranos case is a really interesting one. And there, there were private investigators working on, um, working on behalf of the company. Um, and I don't think that was necessarily a bad thing to do. If you're a private investigator, you hired by a company to, um, you know, to, to work on a case like that. I think that's legitimate work, uh, as an investigator, but at some right. point you've got to stop and just kind of, uh, consider who you're working for and, and, and what they're doing and, and those kind of things. But yeah. So yeah. Witnesses, witnesses are interesting things, aren't they? They are. And, and, you know, I think uh, it needs to be said for, for all of us who are private investigators, no matter what we get involved in, it could end up in court. It's part of the legal process. Even if it seems like it's a minor, just a minor little task, you never know when you're going to be called either to testify or that somebody you talk to is going to be called to testify. And you're right, smack dab in the middle of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, for, for private investigators that, that are interested in doing criminal defense work and um, civil litigation work and are interested in um, pursuing witnesses and witness interviews and stuff like that, um, the main thing I can say to them is document 
everything you can along the way. Um, if you're in a state that allows for one-party consent recording and you're working on a criminal case, mm-hmm. my suggestion is record every conversation you can um, just so that the witness can't at some later date stand up and say, well, he told me X, Y, or Z, and you didn't actually tell them that. Um, and I have an example that will um, make that painfully clear. Um, I will say, you know, I've mentioned earlier in the show that um, – there were some, some nuances between doing criminal defense work and civil work. So when I'm doing criminal defense work, I don't mind so much recording interviews if it's legal to record those interviews because there is a, a good deal of protection um, if I'm working for the attorney. Uh, that information is not easily discoverable. If you're working on a civil case, um, I, I do some amount of civil work, and the attorneys that I work for on civil cases specifically ask me not to record my interviews, um, right. but to note-take and write a report so that that doesn't end up being discoverable down the line. Right, right. Yeah, it, it, it's a catch-22, and it depends on the state. It depends on the attorney you're working for. There's so many things. Like, I mean, you mentioned a one-party recording state. Again, that's another thing we can't do in California. It, we, it has to be two-party right. consent. Um, and if you're recording it, you protect yourself by putting that actually on the recording. <laughs> because yeah, you're so going to be attacked have- otherwise. I had a case I worked in Texas a couple of years ago where um, this uh, young lady um, was a witness and she told me a story about her ex-husband forging a document. Um, and I spoke to her and she told me this whole story. We got, um, you know, got an affidavit put together for her. She signed the affidavit, um, went to court. Uh, she testified to what she said in the affidavit. You know, the hearing was fantastic. About a month and a half later, she gets back together with her ex-husband. And now she says that I coerced her into saying this, that I did not, you know, let her know what she was signing. Um, and that the lawyers told her she had to, to lie on the stand because she had told me this and she'd already signed it. And... There was a lot of brouhaha oh, about God. this situation, and one of the lawyers called me in a panic. It was like two o'clock in the morning, and he said, "My God, you know, she's saying that you did this and that we did this, and I know it's not true." I said, "Well, I can send you the audio of the recording, and in the audio, you could actually hear me saying to her." I want you to read this document and make sure that I'm not putting words in your mouth. Make sure this is your story and make sure that you're comfortable with it. And in front of this notary public, if you're comfortable with what's in here, I'd like you to sign this and you can (laughs) hear her reading and considering, and then you can hear the pen stroke on the page. Wow. And you had an, and you had a notary there with you. Oh yeah. Is that, is that typical? Not typically. We actually went to the notary's office to get the affidavit signed um, and notarized because we wanted to memorialize it and, and have it be, you know, an actual legal document, not just um, a witness statement. 
That that is fascinating that you had a notary sign it off too. Uh, I often have people read the report and then write on the bottom that they've read it and agree with it or understand it and make corrections if they need to. So, uh, Hal, we need to take a really quick break. Uh, Let's do that and let our our sponsors give a little time and we'll be right back. That sounds great. Okay. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm here with my guest, Hal Humphreys, the face of Pursuit Magazine and a investigator extraordinaire, and we're talking about uh, interviewing witnesses. So what's your process, Hal, when you, you get a case and you decide you have X number of witnesses to contact? What's your process? How do you go about it? And who do you do first? And I'm, who glad, do I'm really glad you used the word process because I am a process guy. If I get taken <laughs> off of my process, things go bad. Okay. Um, so what I like to do in the best case scenario, and, and, and I, it, several of the attorneys that I work with um, know this process and work with me on it, um, but I like to go through the discovery that's available. Um, <clears throat> obviously, read the police report, 
um, or accident reports or whatever. And then I, I prefer to sit with the attorney um, and go through the witness list and prioritize before we do anything, just based on the information that we have. Um, and once we get the priority list put together, then, um, you know, kind of rank those top priority witnesses uh, in order of, like, extreme importance and then start researching those. Um, what I don't, you know, if I were left to my own devices, I would interview everybody available, and that's a lot of times not entirely helpful to the, to the defense. Does that make sense? That makes sense, and, it, and it's probably uh, not a good use of resources. Right. It's not a good use of resources. And, you know, what we're dealing with is like, you know, my friend Brian Willingham uh, over at Diligente Group, and I know you, you know, Brian, his right. thing is we can do pretty much anything you need done if you have enough time and money. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, right. So, and you that's know, on always criminal a defense struggle. cases. That's always a struggle. Yeah, it sure is. It definitely is. Um, and if you're, if you're doing criminal defense cases, there's, a better than average chance that you're going to do some appointed work, and the you know the money available is not um, not great. There's there's decent money to be made, but it's you know in Tennessee I think they pay fifty dollars an hour for um, appointed cases, um, and they usually uh-huh. cap that at a certain point. So you've got to be really kind of judicious about how you. Uh, go about spending your time and, and spending your, your, your client's money. Um, right. So my first step is sit with the attorney and develop a witness list um, that is you know, the top witnesses that they really want me to talk to. Um, and after that, what I will do is I'll take the, the top witnesses and I will do you know, a, a brief cursory background check on them um, and I don't know what all of the other private investigators use for their starting place. I use TLO as a starting place. Um, uh-huh. I also, you know, access other data databases, um, DelvePoint, Clear, those databases. But I consider those databases a starting point. It's not that's not a background investigation. Um, it's just a place to get me started. Uh, let me, and then uh, I will Cal, do, let, excuse me a second. Let me just interject here because okay. we do have listeners yep. that are not private investigators. So, yep. uh, folks, TLO, he's talking about TLO that stands for the, actually the last one. Uh, and uh, DelvePoint and Clear and those other, other databases are prop- proprietary databases, proprietary information that we have to be uh, vetted in order to access the information. We have to make. Uh, we have to be licensed. Uh, we have to submit our license. Uh, sometimes they have to do a, a site check to make sure you keep your information confidential, your office locked, your computer passcoded, and all your files locked up. Uh, so it's very serious. Uh, we take this very serious that we have this access. So those of you that think we can just go online and find anything out about anybody, um, we we have to really uh, provide credentials to be able to get access to that information. Yeah, and, and you know, I will just kind of add to that. Um, all of those databases audit every search that we do. They don't, they don't actually audit everyone. They keep a record of every search that we do. Right. And if they decide they want to audit the work you're doing, they can 
ask you, you know, you search these five names, you know, in on this date date frame, um, you know, can you provide us with documentation as to why you needed to search these people and you know, that kind of business. So not only is it, you know, you've got to be licensed and you've got to, um, you know, as you're accessing that, the database, a lot of times, I think every time you have to say, you know, you have to click the box and say, it's for this use, it's for this purpose. And, right. you know, this is why I'm accessing it. Um, and if they do call and say, Hey, why did you search Tom Selleck's name? You sure better have a letter from an attorney or someone saying, reason. you know, Tom Selleck is a witness in the case, and we need to do some research on him. Right, right. And if there's any impropriety found, you will lose your access permanently. You'll never get it back. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And and quite honestly, I know those guys, all those database providers know each other. They end up, you know, sponsoring the same (laughs) conferences and doing those things. And if you get kicked off of TLO, there's a good chance they're going to talk to the guys over clear and say, hey, this guy did, you know, it, it, it can be devastating if you use the thing for the wrong purpose. So absolutely. that said, I use the databases as kind of a starting place. Um, and then once I get that information, I will go to, you know, open source public records. That, that would be um tax assessor's office, register of deeds office, public court information. Um, I will also search for any news articles on the person. Um, if they've, if they've testified in court, if they've, um, you know, been deposed, if that's available in public record, I want to read everything that witness has ever said. Um, did you, do you do a public records request online? You can do a public records request if it's not readily available. Um, I will say that, you know, FOIA requests a lot of times take more time than we have as investigators. Right. Um, you know, if I'm, if I'm down to the point where I'm FOIAing information and the trial is a month away, that information is probably never going to get to me in time. Right. That's right. Unfortunately, um, that's true. So, and, if, and if it does come in, it may be heavily redacted. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very much so. Um, Now, you know, most investigators are able to kind of read between the lines on redacted documents, but sometimes really important stuff is missing. Um, So once I get all of that information together on my witness, and I, you know, you and I both know that social media is a wonderful tool and also the bane of everybody's existence, (laughs) but, you know, I, I, I will spend, you know, some amount of time researching my witnesses' social media feeds. Um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram are the ones that I go to first because they're the most popular, but mm-hmm. I end up learning so much about my witnesses based on their social feed. Um, and a lot of times the social feed is how I locate them. Um, you know, if, if, if someone is, if a witness is under the age of 25, the amount of information in the databases on that person is usually pretty limited unless they've got a really you know, extensive criminal history. Um, it's just, it's hard to find information on, on young people uh, in the databases. There may be some references to them, but, but usually not a good address if they're in college or if they're living with friends in, a, in an apartment. So 
I have found that Facebook is a fantastic tool for locating people. They will put their place of work. They will put their, you know, their last place of work, um, you know, stuff like that. And it's a great way to find witnesses and also kind of get a, get a feel for who they are and what they are and what they, um, how they may or may not react to you approaching them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that second part of my process is, is social media research. And then once I've got all of those things together and have kind of sussed out what I think is the best possible location for the witness, um, I will drive to that location and try to interview them. Now, I know a lot of civil investigators spend a lot of time on the phone. Um, and when I'm working civil uh, cases, I do a lot of telephone work sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. For criminal cases, in Francie, I don't know how you feel about this, but I, if I can get in front of the person, I've got a much better chance of getting them to talk to me than calling them on the phone. Absolutely. No number, question about number it. Number one. Number two, if I'm sitting with the person in person, in their house or their office, somewhere they're comfortable, I have a much better grasp of who they are and what they are and what they're about than I would on the telephone. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely true. And and I when I'm training people, I always, you know, people that aren't investigators may react to this strongly, but I always tell people to, to go unannounced. Because yep. once you're a friendly face at their door, it's much easier to get them to talk to you than if you try to make an appointment or try to call them on the phone. Just the way it is. I did, I did have a witness one time that called the police and said, there's a big hairy Sasquatch on my front porch and he's bugging <laughs> me. Um, you know, that, that sometimes happens. Um, but yeah, I mean, a friendly face at the front door, you know, I'm, I'm never intimidating. I'm never threatening. Um, I try to be, you know, deferential to the witness. Um, you know, and, and part of my process is Francie and I break it down to steps for me because it, it really makes a difference for the way I organize, um, the reports that I give my attorneys. But, um, if I'm in a state where I can record the interview and it's a criminal case, I will have a recorder with me. I will walk up to the person's house on the recorder. Before I do that, I will say, this is Hal Humphreys. I'm at this address. This is today's date. And I'm going to attempt to talk to witness X, Y, or Z. And the interview will start in a few minutes in an effort to not be accused of, um, stalking or, um, being threatening, I walk up to the front door and the first thing I do is I knock 10 times. I don't bang. I knock, you know, forcefully, but not, not pound on the door. I'll knock 10 times. I step back off the porch and I count to 60. If they have not come to the door by that point, I'll walk back up and I will knock five times and I will step back off the porch and count to 30. At that point, if there's a doorbell visible, I'll go up and ring the doorbell, step back and count to 30. Um, if there's not a doorbell, I just move on um, because I'm fairly certain people will be able to hear my knock. Um, but I don't want to pester a witness. Um, number one, they could say I'm being threatening or intimidating. Number two, I don't want to piss them off, you know, okay. first thing. Right. So that they're like, who are you? Why are you pounding on my door? Mm-hmm. Now, do you, but you don't leave a card and you don't leave, leave any way to contact you. 
I don't. If there's nobody there, I, I leave the place as I found it um, <clears throat> just because I've never had any luck with leaving a business card. You know, Thomas H. Humphrey's private investigator, please call me back. They never do. Or if they do, they're like, what is this about? And it, it's, it's a little bit more confrontational. Um, I will go back to the house at a, you know, if it's during the day and they're not home, I'll go back after five. Um, if they're not there around five thirty or six, I may go back, um, seven thirty or eight. I don't like to knock on doors after eight or eight thirty at the latest, just because no, you're getting into people's personal space. Um, and you know, I, I don't know if this has happened to you, but I've had a gun pointed in my face on more than one occasion, less than five occasions, and I don't like that feeling. <laughs> I can't imagine why. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's a little dicey. And of course, uh, you know, what you haven't mentioned, but we go into neighborhoods that aren't necessarily safe. Oh, sure. And, you know, I've been in neighborhoods that, that, that are not necessarily safe. Um, and I'm thinking specifically of a neighborhood uh, in Amarillo, Texas, that is widely known as kind of a, a crystallized methamphetamine part of town, right? Right, right. And um, I'm the guy in blue jeans and a sports coat and a white dress shirt and dress shoes walking, you know, door to door. Everybody in the neighborhood knows that I'm a detective. The only yeah. question they have is, am I police or am I private? Right. Yeah. There's, there's no question in anybody's mind about what I am. Um, so, you know, the, the, the neighborhood situation, you know, as an investigator, you're going to have to go into some uncomfortable situations. You know, it just, that's just what the job requires. But what you have to do is, huh? It just comes to the territory. It does. But you also have the ability to kind of pre-plan the thing and have, you know, if things go wrong, you need to have a way to get out of there. Um, you know, and, and witnesses, like I said earlier, witnesses are strange things. I had a, had a witness in Tennessee, um, north of my hometown. And the witness was a former high school guidance counselor. Oh, well. Now, and it was, it was an older, um, lady and I felt so comfortable going to make this interview. It was like, it's an older lady. It's in my backyard. I grew up in this part of the world. I speak the language. And I was pretty relaxed about the whole thing. I walked up and knocked on the door, and her husband comes to the door and cut off blue jeans, no shirt, and a forty-five caliber handgun. <laughs> I introduced myself, and he pointed the gun right in my face and said, I don't give a damn who you are. Get the off my property. Yeah. And I put my hands up and said, not a problem. Right. And walked back to my car. I listened back to the recording later on that afternoon, and what I said when I got in the car was, well, that didn't go very well, did it? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so let me ask you how. So you go to a house, and there's no answer. And you've been back, you know, say you've been back three times. You've been there at night, morning, afternoon, maybe the weekends. Um, sure. what do you do then? 
I will typically go back to social media and see if they may be on vacation or if they're not there. Um, I might start looking at where they work. Um, I, I, I prefer to catch people at their home to talk to them than at work because once you go to someone's work, it becomes a thing. Um, but if I can't get them at home, I will not hesitate to go to their place of employment and try and talk to them there. Um, but I'll keep, I mean, it depends on the importance of the witness. If it's, if it's, you know, a key, key witness, I'll keep going back and keep going back. Yeah. Um, now if someone answers the door and it's not the witness and they say, who are you? I tell them who I am and I tell them what I'm doing and I give them my phone number. Um, and I've had pretty good luck with people calling me back in that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and nine times out of 10, the witness is not in any trouble. You know what I'm saying? They're, right. And you can say to them, hey, they're not in any trouble or you're not in any trouble. I just need you to help me understand this situation. Right. Well, and I, I thought early on in this, um, this uh, interview, Hal, that you said you were quoting Eli Rosenblatt, but I think it's true. Our job is to get the facts. It's not to manipulate. It's not to create new information. It's not to change anything. It's just simply to find out what the witness has to say. That's right. As thoroughly as possible. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the, the other thing that I find really useful when I'm talking to witnesses, because here's the thing. I'm not an attorney. Most of us private investigators aren't attorneys. Now, I know, you know, John Nardese, who is a PI in um, Boston, is also, he's been to law school. He has an, you know, he, he's an attorney. Um, but that's not the norm. Most of us aren't attorneys. So I know full well that I'm not going to think of everything to ask the witness that an attorney might. Um, you know, witness might say something to me and I make note of it and it doesn't spur another question out of me. So I try to leave the door open once I talk to a witness to come back and talk to them a second time. And I ask them explicitly, you know, hey, I really appreciate you talking to me. Um, you know, I know it's a a difficult subject or whatever, but, um, I've got to go report what you said to my attorneys. Uh, If they have follow-up questions, do you mind if I come back and talk to you or may I call you? Is there a good number where I can call you back? Um, and I, I just put it all out on the table and tell them, you know, Hey, we may need to come back and talk to you again. Um, and I find that usually like nine times out of 10, if they've talked to me the first time, Number one, they know they're going to be, you know, likely to be called as a witness. Um, and number two, they're usually willing to, you know, to answer follow-up questions. It doesn't. It's not a big deal at that point. And you know, the other interesting thing uh, is that it seems like every time you contact, say, for instance, you've interviewed a witness and you go back for some reason, either to to check out information or to subpoena them or whatever seems like you always get more information because now they feel like they know you. Yep. Have you had yep, that experience? Absolutely. Yeah, it's so Yeah, and I've also had the experience where, where, you know, I spend time with a witness and I, I, I like them as a person. Um, and they seem to like me as a person. And there's a, a bit of a friendship that develops over the course of, you know, prepping for getting ready for trial and going through the trial process. And, you know, if they're a witness that, that, 
you know, is useful to, to my attorneys, you know, a lot of times I'm the guy that meets them at the courthouse and says, hey, here's where we're going to sit and here's what you're going to do. And we'll come get this. I kind of handhold them through that process. So, um, you know, you end up building relationships with witnesses sometimes. That's that's very true. It's very interesting. And, and sometimes we even give them rides to court because they don't have transportation. Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I was I was with another investigator years ago, and he asked me, he said, you know, I get nervous when I go knock on a door. You don't seem nervous. Um, how do you do that? You know, how do you not be nervous? And at the end of the day, if I'm not a little bit nervous going up to knock on the door, something's probably about to go wrong. Um, for instance, that the, the lady witness that I was going to talk to north of my hometown, I wasn't nervous at all. Um, I didn't consider all the possibilities. You know what I'm saying? So I think a little bit of nervousness is normal and okay. And I think if you're not just a little bit nervous, maybe you're approaching it with the wrong attitude. I like to, I like to go into every situation with a witness with the attitude of, um, you know, I don't know what's about to happen. I have a notion of what might happen, but I'm going to keep my eyes open, my ears open, and, and pay attention to what's going on around me so that, you know, I can, you know, come back and do this another day. You know, and I think some people, how some investigators um, forget that their interview actually may start with the time at the point they drive up in front of the house and get out of the car. Yeah. Because you never, you never know who's watching. Absolutely. And, and, you know, again, I said, you know, I'm the guy walking around the neighborhood in blue jeans and a white dress shirt and a sports coat. That's kind of my uniform. Um, I don't like to wear a suit and tie to go out and do interviews. I think it's a little bit off-putting sometimes. Um, but, you know, blue jeans, kind of casual dress seems to work really well. But, you know, I would not go up to do an interview in cargo shorts and tennis shoes and a T-shirt. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And, you know, you guys don't have as much flexibility as we women do. We can we can wear a lot of things from casual to dressy and be okay. You kind of, you kind of, you guys have to kind of have a bit of a uniform. Yeah, and we can't have flashy things. It just doesn't work <laughs> out. Um, you know, I, I can't wear a pocket square and an ascot to an interview. I'd look like an ass. <laughs> that would be pretty funny. So. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're almost out of time, and I um, am not getting any notifications from our executive engineer here, Aaron. Uh, so I think we're just about out of time. Um, but okay. so just one real quick thing, Hal, if you could say, if you haven't met with um, an attorney and decided what your priorities are, who would you interview first? Um, I would start with... Um I would, I mean, I, almost always I start with my um, defendant, uh, find out what they have to say, what they, you know, what their story is, find out what witnesses they think are important. Um, and then I would look to the police report and who the police have talked to and what they have to say according to the police. Um, I have found a number of times, probably the overwhelming majority of the time, what the police put in the report that the witness said Okay. It's not. Um, it's not wrong, but it's not the full story. Okay, Hal. I just. I 
Aaron just got to me. My executive engineer here just got to me, and we are out of time. I'm so sorry to cut you off. Um, and Don't worry. talk to you soon. Folks, join again, me, again with me next week for PISD Classified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. PIs Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time here on the Voice America Variety Channel.